So in English, when we talk about Buddhist practice, Buddhist practice, we often use the word practice. And um, sometimes we're so so commonly used that all you have to ask someone is, what's your practice? Or to practice this, to practice that. And everyone kind of understands what it is. Uh, I don't think there's any really good obvious translation of the word practice the way we use it back into well back into the ancient language of the Buddha uh, the comparable word that they used was to cultivate um, and uh, and this idea of cultivating what are we cultivating what are we cultivating with our lives because our lives are organic, it's organic life, and it grows and develops and unfolds over time. No organic life is static. And it's true for our bodies, it's true for our minds, and it's true for our hearts. And so as it develops, as it changes over time, what are the conditions that come to bear on how it changes and how it evolves over time. If you um, don't take any responsibility whatsoever for how your whole organic system evolves over your lifetime, there are a tremendous number of people who are being paid a lot of money to decide for you, to have an effect on you. Advertisers and politicians and all kinds of people who want to have you become good consumers, good citizens, good this and that, and to kind of shape you. And depending on what environment you live in, uh, you can be shaped by hate. And, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of hate in this world of ours. And, or you could be uh, in an environment that cultivates love. You can be in an environment that of greed, or you can be in an environment that cultivates or brings forth generosity. You can be in an environment that cultivates and brings out delusion, to say it politely. Or you can be in environments that helps cultivate and develop wisdom within you. And you have some role in these things. So, and, and the role is to contribute those conditions so you become the person that you'd like to become. Do you want to become a person who becomes motivated by love, by generosity, by wisdom, by being a peacemaker in this world of ours? Every year I go to San Quentin, bring a group of people to San Quentin, um, and we see a program called, uh, last few years, called GRIP, uh, Guiding Rage into Power. And uh, some of these people have done some of the worst things that human beings can do to each other, and they should be in jail. Maybe not for as long as they're put in for our society. But uh, one of the reasons they should be in jail, sometimes it takes them a long time in sitting still, in their cells, before they think, you know, there, I think there's a different way. 
I don't think I have to keep doing this. I think I want to create get different conditions of how this could, should be. We had, uh, this year we went, there was a, um, so this is a guiding rage into power is a very intense year-long uh, community focus, a group of 28 men who stay together very closely for a year to work out their issues around anger and violence and rage and more importantly their deeper wounds and hurts that kind of are really the reasons for this. And um, and uh, so it's a very it's a very intense work inner work that they do together. And it's a, a great privilege to step into it, to the middle of it, and to kind of witness their process. And uh, one of the men this this year uh, had gone through it before and had so much respect from everyone that he was made a facilitator of it to be one of the people who trains other people to go through it. And then uh, some months ago. Um, everyone was very surprised to this man that they all respected and had a lot of, uh, uh, you know, respect for his commitment to nonviolence, to dealing with anger another different way. And uh, they found out that he was put into solitary confinement, and he was there for a couple of months. And then when he came out, they found out what happened. He had been a um, a uh, member of the Crips gang. It's one of the worst street gangs in Los Angeles. And um, spent many years in prison. And uh, had changed himself around after many years, quite remarkably so. And then there was a rumor in the prison that members of the Crips gang wanted to uh, maybe kill someone, do something bad to someone. It was a rumor. But there was no name associated with it. Who was going to do it? And so, um, you know, the logical thing then to do is you take all the Crips members or ex-Crip gang members and you put them all in solitary confinement. So he found himself in solitary confinement. First he didn't know why. And, um, and so he said for the first two weeks that he was there, it was very difficult. First he thought he was solitary confinement was going to be a good place to go because he was a meditator. Oh, he'd be quiet. And apparently he'd been in solitary confinement in other prisons where it had been quiet. It turned out San Quentin solitary confinement is not quiet. It's yelling and screaming and apparently an awful place. And um, so the first two weeks he said, I just stood in my little cell and was angry had self-pity, and just kind of went over and over the injustice of this, injustice of it, and thinking, well, yes, you know, haven't I already done my time, and why is this happening to me, and I guess I have to, I guess this has to follow with me. What I did when, as a young man, has to follow with me my whole life, and just stood there, and stood there. And then he, um, after two weeks, took him two weeks, he said, you know, maybe I should try meditating. So he sat down and he said he could meditate for two minutes. That was all he could do. And um, after, uh, but then he got up and stood there and then he went down and sat again. And he had, you know, had, a, he had a lot of time, so he kept, that's what he was trying to do, was come back and sit, come back and sit. And slowly he was able to extend how long he sat. 
until he could sit for a few hours at a time, apparently a couple hours, and just sit out most of the day. It became his retreat, like your retreat here. And then he said, and then at some point, um, I dropped into complete stillness, and there was no thought. But then I got excited. <laughs> and popped out, popped out of it. So he, he, you know, he took him two weeks to step out of the world of his inner angst, his inner anger, grief, self-pity, his whole story, and quite strong for him. How long will it take you? Step out of your story and give it a try. You're all giving a try here. It's beautiful what you're doing. I have a lot of appreciation, as I said, I think the opening day for what you've come here to do and what you're doing. And, and I think the way this retreat's unfolding so far, it just feels very good to me. It feels like very quiet and still. And someone commented that, that it was pretty still and quiet here. Those of you who are new, you, maybe you don't, maybe it's too quiet. But uh, it's very nice. And uh, she said that she said a three-month retreat um, uh, at a retreat center back east. And she said it was quieter here than in the last weeks of the, that th three-month retreat. That speaks really well for, I think, what's going on. And so here we are engaged, cultivating. So what are you, what are you cultivating here? And it has a lot to do with the intentions. What do you, what do you intend here? What are you hoping to develop? What inspires you? What kind of person do you want to become? And if you have some sense of that, then um, it's so important to hold that lightly, to not have expectation and look at your watch, am I there yet? But you know, so rather put together the conditions so this might be the case. So one of the things we want to cultivate in Vipassana practice is a sense of stability that's really important for Vipassana practice. So you, so kind of the ground that's created is to be grounded. So Nikki talked about that yesterday. Stability, grounded. A firmness, uprightness. An ability is to kind of hold your ground no matter what's happening. You're here and you stay upright with it. It's a great capacity to cultivate. The second thing to cultivate is um, well-being. And uh, I like the word well-being because it's so vague. <laughs> you know, if I, if I said happy or joyful, and then you, you, know, then you try kind of to twist yourself into being happy, you know, <laughs> or joyful, you know, like, oh, I'm supposed to be, but who knows what well-being is supposed to look like? <laughs> you can't really kind of... Is there a well-being smile? <laughs> I think you can't really. So, and also well-being, it covers a whole wide dimension of, um, you know, it's kind of like a broad, broad category holds within it happiness and joy and contentment and satisfaction and, you know, peace and, you know, all kinds of things, well-being. And um, so it isn't that we're supposed to make ourselves happy, but are there, are there conditions that help support the arising of well-being? So one of the things that um, uh, one of the things that I'm very grateful for, 
in this practice, in the years I've done this practice, that brings me a sense of well-being, helps me relax, feel happy, delighted, feel confident, feel kind of inspired. Um, this gives me a sense of purpose. All these things are kind of in the family of maybe well-being is of quality of trust. And, um, and what I have trust in, what I've learned from this practice, that is a deep trust in the process, that if I show up to be present, that something begins to unfold. And that's, not <coughs> that's not my doing. I can't or- orchestrate or, or engineer it. But there's a very deep process that unfolds that I trust. So it doesn't require much more from me than to be very honest and present for what's here. And not try to fix anything, and not try to engineer anything, but just really present. And that's what mindfulness practice has a lot to do with, being really mindful and present for your experience, and really recognizing, oh, this is what it is. And that's not a static thing, it's not like a dead end, you know, like, okay, you know, follow a couple of breaths. Okay, I've done that. There was a little video made at Spirit Rock many years. That's not a Spirit Rock. Someone made a parody of Spirit Rock once. Kind of a, they did it at Spirit Rock. They, I don't know, they snuck in. I don't know how they got permission to do it. And um, this guy was sitting, and the little parody was sitting retreat at Spirit Rock. And so then he went, you know, out to make a phone call from the courtyard to his girlfriend and explained to her that he just finished his meditation and, and you know, she said, oh, you sat the 45 minutes? And he said, no, no, 10 minutes, I nailed it. (laughs) 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 Done that. You know, it's important things to do in the world, right? So you get it over with quickly. (laughs) No, but to trust the process, to trust just being. To trust that just to be is a, enough. Just to be is wonderful. Just to be. So, um, if you sit still, so, so, or so a person could sit still and discover that they're agitated. Then they can sit still with their agitation and discover that under the agitation is fear. Then they can sit still with their fear. And they notice that the fear lessens, that lightens a little bit, there's more space for it. Then they sit still with that lightening of the fear. And then they discover that the body begins to relax and to soften. Then they sit still with the body relaxing and softening then they discover that maybe, you know, you can fill in the story, you know, maybe they discover there's sense of love or care, compassion, that somehow is deep inside, that finally has a chance to show itself. So that little story is a story of a process that unfolds, but the only thing that the per- was required was to sit still with it. Sit still and pay attention. Sit still and you discover, oh, it's like this. And once you discover that, then you discover, you know, that that opens up to something else or evolves or shifts to something else. So we sit 
and to learn to trust that we can just do this. Now, sometimes it's not fast enough, right? It'd be nice if it was 10 minutes and we can go on. But sometimes we have to stay with things for, you know, much longer than we would prefer. Um, but the process can be trusted. That if we stay, things will change and open. And you p- create tremendously good conditions for yourself when you learn to practice being present for what is and are honest about what is. To recognize and see, oh, this is what it is. I've seen here on retreats that, um, I've taught you know, many retreats now over the years, and we try to create very good conditions for retreats so that people um, you know, are, feel safe here and feel cared for and you know, protected from many things that could happen, you know. But every once in a while something happens on retreat that, you know, we shouldn't have happened. And, and not such a nice thing to happen. Um, and, and, um, and, and then we try to meet that and figure out what to do from there. But what I've noticed is that um, the more the, when the unexpected thing happens, someone you know falls and breaks a leg or something here. You know that's unfortunate, right? And they have to go to the emergency. In the middle of the retreat, the retreat is an emergency. That uh, initially, the, the bigger the deal it is, the bigger the kind of disruption is. It turns out by the end of the retreat, the more they benefited from it, the more they were transformed by it. Rather than it being the problem of the retreat, it becomes like the gift of the retreat. So I, I saw this over and over and over again. I began wondering why, you know, what, what's going on here? Uh, and uh, the best of my ability of understanding this is that when you're doing a practice to show up for yourself and really see what's going on, it's very hard to hold on for too long to anger at the situation, or resentment, or, you know, fear for the situation, or um, self-pity, or self-identification with experience, kind of making a story, this means that I am. All kinds of things that build up, that are very powerful in the world. Here, something very different happens because we're committed to looking at it, and being present for it. And it's hard to want to sustain, like if, like if someone, you know, you know, someone does something that they shouldn't have done for you, then maybe they, by mistake, you know, sat down at your seat at the dinner table. I mean, you've sat there every day, everyone should know it's your seat. <laughs> you know, and you, but it, they're sitting in it, right? I mean, the indignity of it and the lack of respect. And, um, you know, and, and hopefully you don't have to spend two weeks in solitary confinement before you kind of begin loosening up on your, the grip that your indignation and your anger has. And so then you slowly begin to kind of relax. Because it, you don't really want people, when you're really f- present and see it for it, chances are you don't, you don't re- you're not really behind it. You're not, you're not really kind of like gung-ho. <laughs> This indignation is great. I love it, and I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. I'm having a good time. You know, I don't think it works that way, right? 
I think we begin to loosen up and lighten up. We don't want to hold on. And so the kind of the painful ways in which we respond to things, things that are difficult, we tend to loosen up on because we see it so clearly. And if we loosen up on those, then there's room and space for different responses to occur, different understanding of it all. And understanding the process of letting go of values and what's important. And then inevitably, people seem to change for the better in these things. So once or twice, um, I've been criticized for, or blamed or whatever you call it, accused, accused of um, creating the conditions like this. Um, Gil, you must have created this so we'd have a hard time at the retreat. Once the, oh, we had a retreat where, um, two-week retreat, and uh, 10 days of the retreat, there was no running water. And it was one of the best retreats I ever taught. <laughs> it also rained the whole time. And so everyone was kind of like all, all cozy and there, and the caretakers went down to the local fire station and brought water, big canisters of water, and we had all this water systems going on. And and, uh, but at the end of the retreat, Gil, because everyone recognized how great it was, that Gil, you planned it. <laughs> so, so a sense of well-being from knowing, having joy, <coughs> joy or happiness or inspiration from having this practice, having this, or having some confidence in the process of honesty and presence and st- being still with what is, being with what is. That, I feel, is one of the greatest gifts this practice has given me. There are other things that can bring a sense of well-being, that can help support it. One is um, gratitude. Uh, You know, to spend a little bit more time than you normally would do being grateful of things that are appropriate to be grateful for, not difficult to figure out to be grateful for. I know from my own life, it's very easy to go through years being grateful for nothing. <laughs> it's kind of amazing now that I say it. And um, certainly over those many years when I wasn't grateful for anything, I'm sure there was something I could have been grateful for, right? <laughs> my parents, for example. And only later that I realized how much they did for me. And... Um, so gratitude changes the is one of those conditions that uh, shifts how we grow, how the organic system cultivates and develops over time. To spend a little bit more time with gratitude is supportive. Being grateful to be with your community here, practicing together, is supportive. I think helps something relax. Um, there is a sense of well-being that can come from appreciation. Um, what are the things that you, that you don't have to manufacture appreciation, but what are the um, overlooked things that you can appreciate today, at this moment, at this time, at this hour? Are there things that are appreciatable that are happening around you at this time? And again, I know from my own mind, you know, I've, I have, I've had, a, I don't know about your minds, but I've had a strange mind. I can go again, uh, I can be involved in some inner drama and inner 
preoccupation and inner resentment and thing. And I hardly notice anything around me in my world. All things could be beautiful and beautiful sunset and beautiful skies and clear air and nice food and just even having food. There are people in the world that don't have food, right? And uh, and then they serve me food and I look around and say, well, well, tomorrow they better serve spinach <laughs> mm -hmm. or more protein. You know, just look, looking and see what the problems are without really appreciating what's here. It's a phenomenal that there's anything at all, all the stuff that supports us. So appreciation is, is a nourishment for the heart. And this is one of the ways to cultivate well-being is to be nourished. So what are things that can nourish you in simple ways? It doesn't take you out of, your, out of your way or out of the flow of the day. What is it? It sometimes doesn't, doesn't take much. Uh, standing still at the, at the, you know, at the buffet table, not if there's a long line behind you, but standing still just for a moment and take it in, in your stillness. As opposed to, you know, searching, you know, what do I want and what should I get and I hope there's going to be enough for me when it's my turn and you know, in the, all in the inner world of wanting and everything, and just like step back. So this thing about being still and being receptive and open, there's a way of doing that It's nourishing. Ah, look at that. There are people who've been cooking for me and chopping for me. Will they come home with me? <laughs> you know, it's pretty nice. And um, so appreciation is a good thing to do. And then, um, wholeheartedness. <coughs> There's something I've, uh, I discovered very nice it, to do something kind of wholeheartedly. They're going to give yourself to what you're doing. And, um, and the more there's an art to like, the more you give yourself to what you're doing, the less room there is for being distracted, being caught up in other concerns, uh, being caught up in maybe uh, even, you know, ideas of self and self-measuring and self-judging. Because the more you're involved, I'm just there for the experience. Um, there's uh, less and less room for the things which are sometimes drain us and and doesn't support us. There's something beautiful about just being fully present. And this is the art of Buddhist concentration practice. Uh, sometimes it's called absorption practice because we get absorbed in it. Kind of like a little bit like getting absorbed in reading a really good book, absorbed in a craft that you might be doing or playing music. You're, you're, you know, it means you're wholeheartedly in it. You're all, you're all in it. You're completely involved. You're not like a little bit in it. So one of the things, so one of the ways I learned this, um, so 1980, I went off to the Zen monastery. <coughs> and um, the last stop before getting to the monastery was a bookstore in Carmel Valley. 
and uh, I pulled down a book from the bookshelf and uh, in the spiritual section and I opened the book randomly and I read a passage there where the person said something like um, the problems of human the human problem is um, and the pr- fundamental human human problem is holding that people hold themselves separate from their experience separate from life so that was interesting so that lingered with me and um, and I, I decided I didn't I was intrigued by this but I didn't like the way it was sta- stated negatively the problem was holding ourselves separate so I rephrased it said the solution is to participate so then I was assigned to the monastery kitchen and that became where I practiced uh, explored what it's like to participate with what I was what I do just really there for it so I, and so my primary teacher I think it was the carrots for three months I was like a prep cook and I was always chopping and and I did not like to be in the kitchen. I didn't want to be there. And I didn't believe in kitchen work. <laughs> I, I was there to be a monk and to meditate. The real practice was in the meditation hall. You know, what does chopping vegetables have to do with real practice? And so I would be there. But I had this question, how do I participate with what I'm doing? So as I, what I noticed was that I would, um, I would actually stand the cutting board and the carrots and the knife, and my left side would be twisted towards the door, <laughs> the way out. And I would kind of turn myself around to be squarely me and the carrots, and then just me and the carrot. And then after a while, I'd start turning <laughs> to the left. <laughs> Gail, come back. <laughs> and I had to do it many times, Go, come back. Just, just, just you and the carrots. So, um, and eventually I learned to just be, you know, the carrots and I became friends. Or at least I was friendly. <laughs> so, you know, just chopping the carrots. And it was great. Great. I learned so much about myself, my, 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 what I thought was important and how I didn't want to participate. So this question, how do I participate? There's wholeheartedness with whatever you're doing. So I want to read you another St. Quentin story, which is a wholehearted story. Um, and this was written by um, uh, someone in the, one of these programs that we go visit. I don't know if it's a true story, but it uh, captures it anyway. My night <coughs> was like any other night. It was 8 p.m. time for close custody count. All prisons have institutional counts wherein they count each prisoner's body to ensure no one is missing or has escaped. Not being there for count is considered a serious violation. The officer came to our cell and called my bunkie's name, after which he gave him the last two digits of his uh, prison number. The same went for me. Half an hour passed, and a neighbor comes to my cell and said, They are paging me downstairs. I had not heard them calling for me. I went down to the podium and the cop said to me, why were, why were you not in your cell for count? And I told them, I was in my cell for count, as, as I have been every day and night for 12 years. 
and I have numerous neighbors that can verify that. It did not matter what I said. That cop told me not to do it again, and I am like, whatever. Two days go by, and I find out that the sergeant gave me a write-up, a violation. I'm thinking, okay, I truly am not guilty of this, and I have many witnesses who will say the same. However, at the hearing, the cop that counted said he looked into the cell two times and I was not there. It did not matter what I said or how many people I had who would say the same because I was found guilty and given 40 hours of extra duty. I said to myself, screw this. I'm not going to do the work. This is unfair. I did nothing wrong and these guys are wrong about this. I watched that count cop count me and he did not look up from his count board once. His eyes never left that board. I filed a complaint against the officer. That is the last thing I wanted to do, but I was not wrong about this. They were. I felt bitter about being ordered to, those, to do those 40 hours of extra work. In a phone call, I spoke to my mother about it, and she wondered if I could perhaps just take it. And regardless of the circumstance and the injustice of it, see if I could do what would ultimately be best for me. She said she would accept what I would decide, but if I could, please act respectfully. I reckoned if I refused to do the work, even though it came about unjustly, I would be guilty in their eyes. I chose to do the work anyway. I have always prided myself with doing exceptional work, and I was desperately looking to find my pride in this situation, somewhere, no matter what. So not only did I do the work, I did the best possible job I could do. I was asked to shine up this brass fire hydrant, though I still felt resentment about those 40 hours of extra work, I set off to shine up this hydrant, and I really got into the job. As a result, this hydrant started shining very brightly. As the sun caught it, I could see my face in it. I noticed I was smiling from ear to ear. I began to laugh out loud for no reason other than enjoying that moment and seeing the result of my work. By pulling all my conscious effort into shining up that fire hydrant, I had become bigger than the unfairness that led me to my assignment. I do not know how long I was at it, but when I was done, that hydrant, it looked like the prettiest thing in the whole prison. Kind of like a small lighthouse standing proudly in an ocean of concrete, calling on how to steer, on how to move through this place. I realized I was shining too, and it hasn't left me. Many people commented on that hydrant all week wondering how come that thing gives off so much light all of a sudden. I just smiled. So, the hydrant. What's your hydrant? What are you polishing today, this week? Your breathing, coming back to your breath, and just being with your breath wholeheartedly, just this. What keeps you away from being participating with your breathing wholeheartedly? Do you have stories, ideas, distractions, doubts? Do you have concerns? Do you have, you know, what, what's going on? 
and and uh, to see that, sit still and to see that. Nothing's wrong. Just one more thing to sit still for and see clearly. But then you have this precious life. Do <clears throat> you want to do something wholeheartedly? And to offer yourself to the practice. Offer yourself to the life here of practice that we have at the, for this week. It's a fantastic thing to do. And there's something that happens when we offer ourselves wholeheartedly that um, a lot of the extra stuff that can pull us away and take us this way and that in our mind begins to quiet down, begins to kind of fall away. And then you'll shine too. Because the forces of shining, the forces of well-being are there when we're not undermining it. It's almost as if in our natural state, we'll be happy. In a natural state, there's a sense of peace or well-being. But if we get spin out in our fears and our desires and our reactivity, <laughs> if we're caught up in wanting and not wanting things and dissatisfaction and all the, that, it's, it's kind of like more and more complicated. We're not resting and relaxed back here in who we are in some deep way. So one of the things that's helpful to understand in doing this practice is, is to be, start getting a little bit wise about the nature of your thinking, <coughs> your thinking mind. Because it's often, it's getting caught up in the byways and highways of thinking mind that often is the very force that keeps us scattered or distracted or keeps us from this natural settling that can happen. So one distinction that's very useful to make is the distinction between discursive thinking and uh, um, observational thinking. Uh, so discursive thinking is when you're having a conversation in your head. Uh, you're having a conversation with someone else, you're having a conversation with yourself, you're telling yourself a story, you're making plans about the future. It's much more involved and abstract what you're doing. And that kind of thinking, uh, the more we do it, it kind of takes us into the control tower. It takes us into kind of an abstract, little bit disembodied world of thoughts, ideas, memories, plans, imaginations. And it can be very, very captivating uh, in this world, sometimes because it's pleasant, sometimes because it seems so important, and sometimes because it's so horrific or whatever, but it seems like we get pulled into it. And um, one of the very interesting exercises to do is when you find yourself really in a really juicy piece of discursive thought, just really kind of like, you know, you've topped yourself. Um, take a moment, don't let go of it, but take a moment and just feel and sense what, it's lo what's in, what your inner landscape is like then. What's the mind like in that state? Just do that all. Just notice what it's like. What's your awareness like? Especially your awareness. What's your awareness like that? And then a different time, when you find yourself particularly quiet for you, settled, peaceful, calm or something, do the same thing. And look in. What's the state of your awareness, the inner landscape like? What's it like then? Especially the awareness, sense of how you're aware. And chances are you're going to start noticing a, f a stark difference between these two. 
And some people will report that when they get pulled into strong discursive thinking, that uh, this awareness gets um, very narrow. Some people have reported that it gets dark, kind of black. When there's more relaxed awareness, it's more spacious and open, and it's more sense of being kind of light, luminous a little bit. And it's interesting, kind of getting, starting to get a sense of the, the visceral or the experiential, subjective way that we're affected by the discursive thinking we're involved in. And sometimes by just being aware of the effect it has on us, then it's like, oh, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not so interested in doing this anymore. It's not a matter. Of, it's not like you have to decide to let go or force yourself to let go. It's like, oh, <coughs> it doesn't feel like it's really for my own best interest to be so dark and so narrow and constricted. To make me kind of relaxing and opening happenings. Then <coughs> sometimes, when there's a lot of discursive thought, you can also feel it in your muscles. You feel a tightening up of the shoulders or the neck or the jaw or forehead or sometimes the arms I feel it here or in the hands some people feel it in their hands they get tight it, but you, so you feel the, the impact it has on the body is very educational and because if again if we're only trying to just let go of thoughts or not do with it then it's like you know I don't know trying to chase away pesky flies they just come right back but if you kind of really Take the time to sense and feel what's going on here in a deeper way. Check in yourself more deeply. Then you probably find yourself not so involved in those thoughts, and you're starting to connect to yourself. Something is deeper here. And that's <laughs> one of the ways to cultivate well-being, is to begin connecting something that's deeper than thoughts, deeper than ideas that you can have. And for some people, this is one of the most radical and, th- and difficult things to understand about mindfulness practice, is the degree to which it does, it's not uh, thoughtfulness. It's not just more thinking. We're not at war with our thoughts. They're not our enemy. But we're not just continuing our thoughts freely and it's the way they always go, kind of involved with them and feeding them and telling some stories and... Um, I was at Tassajara, there was a, a man there who was there for several years. He was actually ordained as a Zen priest. And um, he, um, he would spend his, uh, med- all his meditation times um, solving problems. I mean, not just his problems, but I mean like mathematical problems and puzzles. And he would just like sit there and just pass the time and so it's a, probably a good thing for your brain. You know, they have now you have to pay luminosity for that. <laughs> and you know, he he did it. You know, he just did it free, right? Just in his meditation. But you know, it, it, that's, you know, in terms of really being able to connect to something deeper, you, need, you know, what is deeper for you? What is it to be here? The Buddha was called the Happy One. What does it mean to be happy that way? What is it? What is it? What is the happiness of a Buddha? What do you think the happiness of a Buddha is? What if I said? What if we? What if you assumed 
that you in the course of your lifetime have experienced the happiness of a Buddha. So if you look back at the different ways you've been happy, which you think qualifies the most as the happiness of a Buddha? Do you have anything inside? How deep do you go inside to find that place? What does it feel like, that happiness? The visceral, physical, emotional, heartful. What does it feel like? So as a kind of a way of <clears throat> concluding all these different pieces that I've said so far, I'd like to offer you um, a three-part practice of mindfulness that you might want to experiment with some. It might be helpful. And that is, um, the three parts are to recognize to feel, and to relax. So first, uh, when we practice mindfulness, we want to recognize what's happening. So we want to recognize if you're tense. If you want to recognize if you're thinking a lot and caught up in thoughts. You want to recognize if you have a lot of emotions bubbling up. You want to recognize that you're breathing. So to recognize what's happening. And then you want to feel what's happening. So what's the subjective feeling, the inner feeling? What's it like for you in the inside to feel it? To think about it is kind of like to experience it from the outside. I think of at least that thinking about my experience is kind of living outside of it. Feeling it is to live inside the experience. So what's it feel like, whatever it is? When I was in Burma meditating in retreat, I was there during the monsoons, and those monsoons were, um, if you've never experienced it, um, I can't, you wouldn't believe me, but it was kind of like a vertical river coming down from the sky. I mean, it was like, it was amazing the amount of water that could come. And, um, and it was suddenly, and I, I was in this uh, little lodge with tin roof. So when the, it came, the water, the rain came, it would be really loud. And, um, and it would just kind of happen suddenly. And uh, it was my custom that as soon as it started raining, I would recognize it was raining, but I wouldn't start thinking about the rain. And then I would drop into my body, say, what, how does it, what does it feel like? What's just happened now? What's, what shifted? atmospheric pressure or, I don't know, something, the, the temperature or something. So I drop into my body, okay, what just happened? What's happening now? What shifted? What do I feel? So what do you feel? So, and this uh, skill, this ability to really feel what's happening, to, to be inside the, the physical experience of it is very, very helpful. And, um, for one thing, uh, your body is much more of a place of stability than your mind. 
In fact, the Buddha said, oddly enough, he said, more or less he said, um, if you're going to identify with anything, don't identify with your mind, identify with your body, because the body is more stable than the mind. The mind is, jumps around, does all kinds, it's so changeable, but your body is more stable. And so, so to drop in and feel whatever the experience is in your body, there's kind of like a, a container for it. Or as Nikki talked about, they're kind of like this pyramid or this mountain. That a lot, a lot of the stuff that can be difficult inside, can be a lot easier to experience if you allow it to allow it to be experienced in the context of this body that holds it, that let it be. Sort of feel the experience, whatever it might be. <coughs> and then relax, recognize, feel and relax. And relax can mean a, be done in a variety of different ways. It can just mean just old-fashioned, just relax. Just, okay, here I am. This is how it is. Or it can mean relax into the experience. Just relax into the anger that you're having. It doesn't mean that you relax into just fueling the anger more. It means you relax into the feeling of it. You don't fight it, you don't criticize it or condemn it. Just, okay, just anger, just relax into it. Make space for it. <coughs> or you make, or you can, maybe the, the, you can't necessarily relax some of the things, but you can relax around it. And I find it very helpful, the idea of relaxing around something. Just kind of like make more space for it. To soften. And it can, this is, can be done incrementally. Even the a little intention to want to relax sometimes makes a teeny bit more space oh, for the experience. Um, for myself, I'm kind of, I have this idea, image, that, uh, you know, that uh, our skin, the outer skin is like a bag. And we're all held together by this bag. And, um, and so it's very, very reliable, my skin, usually. And actually, I had surgery three weeks ago, and they cut me up and um, opened that bag. And it's already healed. You know, it's all sealed back together. It's, that was quite something. And um, so, you know, it's pretty reliable. It holds us together pretty well. So what it means is that I don't have to do all the work of holding myself together. <laughs> and so, um, so I f this idea, so, so I, sometimes I, I feel like I let my muscles relax into the bag. Let them, all those muscles s soften into the skin. The skin's gonna hold them just fine. I don't have to be the one in charge. Relax into the skin, yeah. And also these bones are great too. They do a great job. These the frame, right? So, and the muscles, they can trust those bones more than they do. So again, relax. And why this is so useful is that the tension we hold in our body is in the muscles. The muscles work much more than they need to. So whether it's the skeleton or whether it's the skin, you know, well, trust them. They're here to support you and to hold you together. And, you know, your skin's not going to let you burst. It'll be all, it'll, it's okay, There's, the skin is pretty good and soft and tender and caring and it'll hold whatever's going on in there. Just relax into it. So relax into what's happening. Relax what's happening. 
just relax, soften. Don't make it a, but be relaxed about relaxing. Don't make it a project. Don't make it, don't have a lot of expectation. But if you do have a lot of expectation, that's okay. Recognize it, feel it, and soften. Recognize you have an expectation. And yet recognize is so important because it's just recognize. Don't condemn anything. Don't be for or against anything. Just recognize, ah, expectation. And then what does it feel like to have expectation? What's the visceral inner feeling like? And then to relax. And this is a training to come back home into the body, to come back home into the depth of what we are, to come back home to this moment here, to be here with this experience. And it's a slow process, and there you have to, there's some speed bumps along the way, sometimes boredom, sometimes doubt about how valuable it is. Sometimes there's a withdrawal period, you know, if you were addicted to caffeine, and you stop, sometimes they say it's a three-day period of adjusting. If you've been addicted to your thoughts, there's a little adjustment process, so you might be uncomfortable a little bit. And so, as you settle in, but it's a really good process to do. So, the topics of today that I somehow try to point towards is the topic of well-being. The Buddha was the happy one. So as you're here in this retreat, today, tomorrow, these days, <clears throat> are there simple ways that you can allow yourself to have more well-being? Are there simple ways that you can appreciate, be grateful, be wholehearted, what you're doing, that is nourishing for you, that you feel supportive of you, is there a way that you can begin kind of turning, coming home to yourself in the simplicity of just being here now? Because this is such an important time for you. Can you kind of be here for yourself and not with the things that are back in the world? And settle and just be home here. And maybe begin just knowing that you're here for yourself, knowing that you're here, is a kind of well-being. Even if what's here is difficult to be with. Just to know that you're here with it, present for it. It's a gift to yourself to be present, to recognize what's here, to feel it, and to relax. And if you do that, and if that's too complicated, then just sit still and see what's here. That's enough. So let's end with a minute of kind of getting recollected. So we can kind of re return to the kind of retreat mode or 